This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The rhetoric between President-elect Donald Trump and the Chinese government gets more interesting by the day. Seen as an important trade partner by some, Mr. Trump is using his Twitter account to talk about issues like devaluing currency and the South China Sea. The manner in which Mr. Trump is moving forward has some people concerned. To take a look at this relationship, we're joined here in the studio by Penn Law Professor Jacques Delisle. And then joining us on the phone is Anne Lee, an adjunct professor of economics and finance at NYU. Jacques, great to see you again. Great to be back. Thanks. Thank you. And great to have you on the phone. Yes, thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, and Jacques, I'll start with you. Uh, this back and forth on Twitter, obviously, is, is very interesting to say the least. A lot of people are worried about it. I'll throw it in from two angles. One, are you worried about it? But two, with the uh, possible appointment of uh, the former uh, governor of Iowa, Randstad, to be the ambassador of China, how does that impact this whole situation? Well, I think everybody's a little bit worried, or, or to a lot worried, <clears throat> excuse me, about the style. Um, you know, it is kind of ironic, of course, in that Twitter is banned in China, so you've got Trump right. communicating through a medium that's not available over there, although people have workarounds. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the the Twitter storm, which started with the uh, the um, statement about mm. Tsai Ing-wen's phone call, the president of Taiwan's uh, phone call with him, uh, you know, there's a sense that this is a guy who throws out the diplomatic <laughs> protocol, throws out the playbook, uh, and is, uh, is kind of provocative and, and unpredictable. And I think that's what's rattling the Chinese. I mean, I think they can cope with uh, a somewhat tougher line, and I think they expected that from whoever succeeded Obama, right. uh, Hillary probably even more than Trump. Uh, but this kind of how do we react to this, how do we even understand this, I think has got them kind of back on their heels. And, and I think you saw the first reaction from China was to be quite mild, to say, oh, this is a Taiwan trick. Right. And that was when some of the people around Trump were saying, oh, it's no big deal. He just accepted a phone call. And then, of course, the story starts to come out that there's more of a backstory and it was arranged. And then the Chinese are wondering, you know, how much do we discount the rhetoric the way we discount rhetoric from American presidential candidates, right. who, especially when they're the out-of-power party, beat up on China, but then tend to hew back to the middle when they get in power. They're hoping that's going to happen, but they can't be sure with this guy. Branstad's a more positive signal. I mean, this is somebody from Iowa, and Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, has a special affection for Iowa. He visited there back when he was a much more junior official, an agricultural official at the provincial level. And uh, when he did his tour of the U.S. as vice president and heir apparent to the top leadership position, he once again made sure to stop in Iowa. So there's this kind of mm -hmm. you know, warm fuzzies about Iowa, and of course this sends in some ways a signal about the importance of trade. And we had Gary Locke as a prior ambassador. He was the governor of Washington State, Seattle, Boeing, all that. Yeah, yeah. Now we have soybeans and corn, uh, which is another major, <laughs> a major uh, export and pork as well, another major export area from the U.S. So it's, it signals somebody who's seen as you know, kind of an executive manager and who has some mm -hmm. ties uh, to China and somebody the Chinese would trust. Problem is, you can do anything you want with the ambassador. If the president is saying something different, right. everybody, including especially the Chinese, take what the president says seriously. And, and, and I guess that's, that's kind of one of the key interesting points here is that uh, the ambassador really, in the end, doesn't have as as much influence. He's he's basically just the uh, the PR person for the United States in that country, especially in a case like this with uh, with uh, how President like Trump is is kind of using Twitter as a as a tool to basically kind of smack the back of the hands of people right now. Uh, true, I think that Trump is certainly sending the Chinese mixed signals between his. Uh, phone calls with Taiwan and Twitter, and then the 
ambassador uh, being someone who knows Beijing more. Um, I think what Trump is trying to do is just send Beijing uh, a signal that, you know, there's a new sheriff in town and that by keeping the Chinese sort of uh, on their toes and not sure what his next move is, he thinks that maybe this will get him leverage uh, because they won't rely on the same playbook. Um, but, you know, with uh, his advisors coming from the Heritage Foundation and other uh, super uh, Republican neocon-like backgrounds to advise him about China, because they're definitely pro-Taiwan, um, you know, this certainly makes it complicated for, for the Chinese to figure out where his true stance is. I suspect that uh, Trump will put on a, a tough front by uh, trying to seem friendlier with Taiwan this way. But in the Pacific uh, area, the U.S. really doesn't have much leverage because the U.S. is mostly strong in the security uh, realm, whereas China is strongest in the economic realm. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of trying to influence what these countries do, uh, I think China actually has more leverage um, because if the U.S. chooses to, uh, you know, be tough on China uh, via these other countries, China is going to basically not react strongly to the U.S., but would react strongly to these other countries economically. And, uh, and this would put these countries into a bind. And I think that, uh, you know, where these countries are going to fall on is that they're going to say, well, what are our true interests here, and a lot of them are going to feel that it's economic because China doesn't really pose a true military threat to them. If they did, then countries like the Philippines wouldn't suddenly, you know, pivot to China that way. So um, so I think that this, you know, this will be interesting to watch as it plays out, but I think that Trump is uh, much smarter than he lets on. I think that he's using, uh, you know, the advice from the heritage folks to put on a tough front, but uh, in the end, he may be more business friendly, which is why he's uh, appointing, you know, the Iowa governor as the ambassador. The the other interesting piece, is, Jacques, is that we talked with you before about uh, what was going on in the South China Sea, and, and seemingly that's another issue that uh, that Mr. Trump uh, wants to kind of make sure that is on the uh, on the on the table and understand that he is not a fan of. Uh, I guess Mr. Branstad may have a may have a role in trying to figure out what's going to happen with that as well. Well, certainly the ambassador is the person on the ground who uh, does the immediate contacts. Uh, obviously, if the South China Sea reaches a, a crisis level proportion, you know, the decisions are being made higher up. But yes, if you look at the Trump uh, tweet responses, you know, the after the initial downplaying of the phone call with Taiwan, which you know, was, let's be clear, a pretty serious departure from four decades of yeah. traditions. Now, you know, I think we can talk about this if you want. I, there's a a pretty good normative argument and a decent security argument for giving Taiwan somewhat greater status, right. but not for tearing up uh, the things that have kept relations stable for decades. So, uh, you know, what we've got going on the South China Sea thing is you look at Trump's tweets after the initial one on the Taiwan phone call. Uh, he said, you know, why can't I talk to them, that sort of thing. But, but when he moved off the Taiwan issue, he did three things, right? He said currency manipulation, which is just a silly charge. I mean, yeah. 
China did do that. That's that's not how most people see it right now. That the, China's not propping up the currency. I'm sorry, it's not devaluing the currency. If anything, it's it's propping it up a bit. But the days of currency manipulation are behind us. He complained about trade barriers, um, and there, China does put up tariffs uh, that are much higher on average than what the U.S. puts up for Chinese goods. That's lawful yeah. under the WTO. And there are a lot of things China does that aren't so WTO conforming. That one's lawful, and that was a deal we struck. But it is asymmetrical. Barriers to investment, yes, you hear a lot of that from the American business community. But mm-hmm. then the last one was South China Sea. Yeah. And that's one where the Obama administration has taken a lot of criticism for being kind of uh, flat-footed in response to what has been a pretty large island-building program. Uh, and, and so China controls these tiny landforms. It's been building them up. They are capable of, of being significant military assets if they deploy the right ships and planes there. Yeah. Uh, and that's a real shift, and that's something you know the U.S. has to be uh, concerned about, and that's certainly the major security flashpoint in the region, other than North Korea. And from an economic perspective, and that 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 uh, that move uh, has a potential to really have an impact on a lot of uh, different goods that are making their way back and forth through that through that region. Correct? Yes, and China is the one who's mostly concerned because it's China's goods that are going through that region, not so much U.S. goods. And so that's why China um, has been so stubborn about this issue. And let's remember that you know China's not the only one doing reclamation activities on those islands. The other countries like Vietnam and uh, you know many other countries, Malaysia. I mean, they're they're all building uh, you know stuff on those islands. And so it was actually the building by these other countries that have claims that caused China to react and start building their own. And so um, so China was not actually the first mover on this. And, uh, and regarding, you know, these sea lanes, I think China uh, is turning to uh, alternative methods for importing their energy and exporting their goods uh, to Europe, which is why they've been pursuing this uh, Silk Road project um, and relying on, say, Pakistan's port as opposed to the Singapore port, uh, precisely because of this China seas issue, and they don't want uh, U.S. blockades to, you know, to create bottlenecks and, and trouble for them economically. There, we're joined uh, on the phone by Ann Lee, a professor of economics and finance at NYU. Here in the studio, Jacques Delisle, director. Uh, of the Center for East Asian Studies here at the uh, University of Pennsylvania and also Penn Law Professor. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number if you would uh, like to join in the conversation. Uh, how do you see this playing out then? Because I, I think, Jacques, that, that China needs to be, uh, obviously, there are many things here back in the United States that that uh, President-elect Trump is going to really try and push forward, but still working an agenda with China has to be up there on the list, correct? Oh, sure it is. I don't think anyone thinks China is not fairly high on his agenda in general. I mean, clearly he talked about it a lot on the campaign trail. He's very focused on on the trade issues and and things like that. I think in in foreign policy circles, the big concern has been that really twofold. One is that his senior foreign policy team focus is very much terrorism in the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, and so that's you know leaving China to the side, a pivot away from Obama's pivot, if you will. Uh, the other is that, that many of his China policy advisors are <clears throat> quite tough on China. They're, you know, they're sort of somewhat, some of them are neocons, some of them are more traditional pro-Taiwan types. But part of the theory behind that phone call is people around him wanted to push in that direction. Now, he's receptive, of course, because he does want to 
upset the playbook. He does want to put down a marker to, to you know, tell China he's going to be tough. Uh, but, you know, the question is how you do it. On the South China Sea thing, I mean, that's that's a very complicated issue. I mean, it is true that, that everybody's got claims and everybody's yeah. uh, been doing a little bit there, but China's been doing way more than anybody else. I mean, the land reclamation thing they have undertaken is on a massive scale that dwarfs what anyone else is doing. And you can trace back these cycles of escalation, but in both of the maritime conflict areas, the East and South China Seas, when China sees a provocation, it responds on a, on a larger scale, and that's what we're seeing. But the real issue here is China has a capacity and a military capacity and has uh, interests and agendas that are more at odds with the U.S. It has a capacity right. to divorce everybody else, and it's, it's more potentially a rival here. So what do we do about it? I mean, China doesn't want the South China Sea shut down. We don't want it shut down. The question is, if the relationship goes very far south, Right. Uh, not, you know, not South China Sea, but South China Sea going bad. Then, you know, who's in what kind of position? And China yeah. has has had a sense of its vulnerability. And so the view is, look, this is our near seas. We want to have the capacity uh, to exercise control. Uh, but that that is a, you know, a problem for a global economy that needs those uh, transit routes. So these are you know, somewhat remote possibilities, but they're out there. And the big question mark, to some extent, is where's Trump going to be on this? We know he's going to be right. tough on trade. How tough we can talk about, and we're not sure yet. But there have been very mixed signals on the security side. Is this a build up the Navy, more assertive posture? I think there's a lot to be said for that. Right. But there's also been these signals about pulling back and we can't afford to do this and the allies will have to fend for themselves. I think the first narrative is more true, but the signals are are, are mixed. I, I guess, Anne, uh, with the fact that uh, President-elect Trump has, has, has uh, talked a great deal during the uh, campaign about the fact that he was not a fan of TPP and he was not going to be involved, uh, have the country involved with that, uh, do you think he has a, a secondary plan kind of in the works right now that he would like to have as a trade relationship with that part of the world? Uh, it's very possible that he... Uh, we'll take parts of the TPP and um, call it something else and um, and have his folks, you know, add in different pieces to it. But, you know, negotiating uh, such trade agreements are very complicated because it involves so many other countries. And the fact that he um, has already publicly said that he's not going to go forward with it really gives China an entree with their own version of TPP, which is ARSA. And, uh, you know, it seems that right now uh, the ball is rolling that way, given that a lot of the countries in the region are dead set on having some kind of free trade agreement. And um, and RCEP also has been going on for years, and the Chinese are eager to, to get it uh, off the ground. And, uh, you know, having Trump step in uh, could probably basically hand the economic reigns more firmly into uh, China's hands. Um, But regarding uh, Trump's uh, ideas about what to do here, I mean, he may um, have some sort of trade agreement, but uh, it'd be perhaps coupled with some sort of investment, you know, agreement because he wants to invest in America and uh, perhaps, the deal that he wants to have his name on um, would involve, you know, getting these countries to invest more in U.S. infrastructure somehow um, as a way to generate U.S. jobs um, so that it's not purely just a trade deal. John? Maybe if we called it the Trump-Pacific Partnership, we could keep the acronym. Right. Uh, but I think yeah, that she's absolutely right that, that uh, we do have this—we had this contending pair of trade agreements, the TPP, which was U.S.-centered and a more thoroughly liberalizing— uh, agreement and the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, that's more Beijing centered and is more in the sort of what what's sometimes called the spaghetti ball 
uh, version of, of overlapping trade agreements. Uh, you know, they were contending, and of course, one excluded the U.S., the other excluded China. Now, China really is in a position to take that leadership role. And, uh, you know, the TPP, of course, was dead regardless, or at least was in trouble, regardless of who won sure. yeah. the election. And and uh, to just reinforce Anne's point, that one of the issues in the region in terms of trying to do some substitute for TPP is not only are these always hard to negotiate, but you have two players that can get in the way. I mean, Congress pulled the rug out from under yeah. the TPP, in effect, right? Yeah. And they granted Obama <laughs> trade promotion authority to go out and do the deal and then said, well, we may not pass this. And then, of course, both presidential candidates bailed on it. But the other thing is countries in the region, leaders in the region took a hit to get TPP through their own domestic political system. Right. And I think they'd be a little wary next time Washington comes to the table now. Hopefully they'll understand that if if the Trump administration comes through with a package, they can accept that this is you know now one party government and and right. you know if he vouches for it, the Republicans in Congress are unlikely to scuttle it. But there's going to be some distrust there, and we're at least going to have a pause while China aggressively pushes the RCEP, which clearly it is. Uh, let's go back to to Taiwan for a second because uh, the the long term relationship that uh, that those sides have had, and then to have this phone call happen. Uh, a lot of people have really jumped on the fact that in terms of the history of the relationship, uh, this was a mistake. Uh, in the end, is it in your mind, Jock, a, a mistake? Because what we're seeing now is pretty much any political leader wants to at least have had a phone call with President Trump just to either say, A, congratulations, or B, we look forward to working with you in the future. Yeah, I mean, certainly everybody wants those phone calls, and we should not lose track of the fact that Trump had a phone call with Xi Jinping a couple of weeks before his phone call with Tsai, and that was reported to be fairly cordial and all of that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is a big deal in terms of, of breaking with what has been a long-term protocol. Now, I think there <clears throat> there is an argument to be made. Uh, that it that in favor of ratcheting up Taiwan's status a bit. I mean, it is a little unusual to have a country with which you have an informal uh, uh, defense pact. Uh, we don't have a formal agreement. We do sell them arms. We're bound to do that, do that by the uh, Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, we have you know dense trade relations. We have very robust informal relations, and there are human rights regarding democracy, a market economy, all that good stuff. So, but for Chinese pressure, we would of course treat them. Uh, as a full uh, diplomatic partner the way we do you know, Singapore or Korea or something like that. Right. We don't because of Chinese politics. And so one can have a discussion about whether that makes sense. Um, and you know, in addition to that, Taiwan is facing a period when it's likely to get squeezed. That is, uh, Beijing is not happy with the new president, Tsai Ing-wen, who was chosen there uh, in the elections in January and took power in May because she is from the party that is traditionally pro-independence, although right. she has moderated the position and, and says she's going to continue the status quo. Nonetheless, Beijing doesn't like it. And we were seeing signs of Taiwan's international space being squeezed. And one of the things that supposedly was discussed in the phone call was Tsai saying, we hope Taiwan will have more opportunity for international participation. And it's in Beijing's interest for them not to be squeezed too badly because then they get desperate and then you can have all sorts yeah. of destabilizing things happening. And I think Beijing probably would tolerate some ratcheting up of the relationship. The concern is that we don't yet have a very clear signal from Trump world about how far this goes. Is this just upgrading status somewhat, You know, right. sending a signal that we're still behind Taiwan and that, that China can't push us around on these issues, which is something they can live with? Or is it calling into doubt the, the real bedrock of the relationship, which is you know, the three communiques, the Taiwan Relations Act, the kinds of things that have for most of the time, absent a strong provocation from either Beijing or Taipei, mm -hmm. most of the time has kept things pretty stable uh, for the last 40 years. Right. Uh, and that's the concern. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I guess going forward then, where are the areas that you focus on to, to really keep an eye on where this, uh, relationships go, uh, this relationship goes forward? Well, I think that we've already touched on the main areas. Uh, clearly, it's uh, trade, it's, it's Taiwan. It'll also, I'm sure, be relations with South Korea and Japan. Uh, you know, keep in mind, like I said, that China has economic leverage over some of these countries. And so, you know, when South Korea's president uh, allowed the U.S. to install um, uh, defense uh military equipment there, uh, and that really inflamed Beijing, basically. Um, I am not surprised that now the president in South Korea is facing, uh, you know, corruption and scandal calls and, and for her to step down. Uh, I think that the business people in South Korea were feeling pressure from Beijing and basically decided to take it out on the current president. And, uh, this could happen in Taiwan as well. If Beijing is not happy with the way uh, these countries are, um, you know, basically disrespecting Beijing's wishes, uh, Beijing is probably not going to outrightly uh, offend the U.S., but would go through uh, these other countries in retaliation. Shock. Yeah, I think that's that's the concern one has to have, right? And and if you see the reaction from Taiwan, I mean, they were delighted to get the phone call and the prospect of uh, something more nearly approaching, and perhaps in some versions even getting all the way to formal ties. Uh, but they also, you know, were fairly quick to send the signal. They didn't see this as a profound change in U.S. policy on cross-strait relations because if they do that, Taiwan's going to be the target, right? Right. Uh, and and that's you know, one of the things that I think is is underappreciated a little bit in the discussion about what Trump is doing and how China will react is China has indirect ways, right? China doesn't have to engage in a tit-for-tat trade war. If right. we throw up tariffs, they have to throw up tariffs, although we probably would get that. Right. There are many more subtle ways. They can put pressure on uh, trading partners that are much more dependent on China than they are on us. They can put pressure on American firms doing business in China through regulatory selective enforcement or selective non-enforcement. Right. Uh, you can see uh, decisions about how state-linked companies decide to make big purchases. There's a lot of subtle stuff that, that, that China can do to, uh, to bring pressure to bear without looking transparently like the bad guy. We probably won't, though, anytime soon see Twitter as a as a legal entity over there in any in any fashion. Correct? I, I wouldn't uh, bet on it. You know, China has something uh, that is you know quite Twitter like Weibo and WeChat, Weixin, uh, which actually are quite good, and a lot of people use them outside of China now. So I think yeah. the bid there is not is is uh, mostly to try to compete with Twitter. Twitter, uh, but yeah, I don't see it happening. Uh, you know, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg's put a lot more effort into into China, and he hasn't succeeded yet in getting access. You're going over there actually uh, today uh, to. Uh, uh, go to a conference and conversations you've had in the last couple of weeks with with, with people over there in that in that part of the world in Japan and, and Taiwan and and Beijing about uh, about their perception uh, and not necessarily at the government level but their perception of Donald Trump as president elect of the United States. I think well, I think people are still you know genuinely trying to sort it out. Right. Right. Uh, and so there's the, the gamut of opinions is there. And, and you know, China's probably the clearest example, which you've got everything from the view that, oh, we can play this guy. We can manage this guy to right. look, he's a pragmatist. He'll strike deals. He's not going to be ideological. He's not going to push us on the human rights stuff. That's good. Uh, the view that he's going to withdraw the U.S. from Asia, which creates space for China. That's sort of an optimistic uh, point of view versus this. What we really like is stability. And now stability is deeply in question. And right. I think given the, the last week or two, 
you've seen that other narrative, that second one, come more to the fore in China. For other countries in the region, that's been the story sort of from the beginning. Uh, they were pretty comfortable with where Obama was. Right. Uh, they were pretty comfortable with where they thought Hillary was going to go. That is, you know, the TPP thing, I think the sense with her was she'd find a way to trim and tweak and come back to support it, and that she'd be uh, in favor of a fairly robust American security guarantee for the allies. Those things are much more questionable with Trump, and that has people in the region worried. One of the uh, one of the interesting things I heard uh, earlier today, Anne, and it was from an economist uh, doing an interview on TV, talked about the fact that if uh, President-elect Trump does get forward, uh, push forward, the, uh, the tax plan that he wants, corporate tax, and we see a repatriation of money, that'll have an impact on China and their, and their trade prospects in the United States as well. Uh, it will. And in the short term, it would probably hurt China. But China has enough other engines going that uh, it probably won't be any game changer for them in the medium to long term. Uh, because remember, China's middle class is growing very rapidly. And in fact, uh, you know, U.S. companies really want to sell into this growing middle class, which is you know, where a lot of their exports and um, profits are coming from. And so if uh, Trump does something that discourages uh, U.S. corporations from um, doing business with China, uh, I think American corporations are going to hurt more than the Chinese. So, uh, so you know, there are two sides to the story here. And, and even if there's a tax, it doesn't, you know, necessarily mean that, you know, uh, there isn't some way that, China can still benefit. So, well, I, I'd be interested to get your opinion. I guess it was what about a week or two ago that, that Yum Brands uh, decided that they wanted to sell off their their KFC stores uh, over in China, and and it went to a Chinese entity, if memory serves me correct. Uh, I actually need to into that more. I'm not sure about the specifics of that deal. Okay. Um, I mean, but you know, I mean, we do have uh, quite a few entities that are over there already, American corporations that are that are making a, an impact over there. So seemingly, you know, even with the relationships not being, you know, as probably optimum as you would like, you're still seeing American corporations being able to find a way to do business over there. Well, absolutely. I mean, American businesses uh, are very deeply in China because it was initially the supply chain um, and China's right in the middle of the supply chain. And so uh, they need to manufacture there. And then secondarily is the middle-class consumption market. And uh, if Trump tries to pull jobs away from China uh, and, and put them back in the States, I mean, it would make it very hard for these corporations to be part of that supply chain. Um, it would make... Uh, U.S. products much more expensive and uncompetitive that way. And then uh, also, you know, like I said, China's economy is one of the most robust in the world. It's, it's you know, slowing down, but yes, it's still yeah. growing at 6%, which is so much higher than the rest of the world. And so uh, Chinese, you know, U.S. corporations don't want to miss uh, selling into that market. And so China has that economic leverage uh, and so whatever Trump does, you know, he has to be mindful of that because he may try to bring home certain jobs, but then he'll end up losing many others. 
then does that does that uh, the fact that uh, Mr. Trump put together that uh, that panel of CEOs to kind of guide him on uh, on certain aspects of economic growth does that help this potentially down the road? I mean, obviously, it would be one piece to obviously a, a larger process uh, in general, but I would think China would be part of that as well. Of the CEO roundtable, yes, said? correct. Uh, I would think that you would be wise to get their perspectives. I mean, anytime you're dealing with something this major, uh, you don't want to have any blind spots. And so um, I would think that he would invite uh, certain China CEOs uh, there as well just to get the full perspective, even if he has a bias against uh, Chinese companies or the Chinese government, um, you know, letting emotional uh, feelings govern how you, you run foreign relations and, and economic policy, you know, would not be a wise move. Jacques, how will that, how do you think the, that, that group of CEOs here in the United States will, will potentially be able to help Mr. Trump kind of guide his path there where China is concerned? Well, I mean, one never knows how much to take at face value Trump's rhetoric on various things. But, you know, the way he talks is, is a kind of uh, outmoded way of thinking about uh, trade relations, right? It's there are yeah. Chinese exports coming to the U.S. and the U.S. is being hurt. And as Adam was pointing out in some of her comments, it's not the way it works. Yeah. Uh, so U.S. corporate executives, big CEOs, these companies, they have presences in China that depend on the Chinese market. They have global supply chains and you know, many people who are not on the roundtable, even much smaller businesses, uh, import uh, components from China that go into what they make. So this, this is not like the Cold War. This is not where yeah. the Soviet Union and the U.S. were not deeply intertwined. There's a deep economic entanglement here. And if you pull on one thread, the whole sweater may come unraveled. So I think one of the things yep. the CEOs may be able to say is, look, American interests, yes, they include U.S. jobs. Yes, they include fair trade. But if you go to this kind of economic war, there are going to be all these downstream effects, which are going to hurt U.S. businesses and hurt U.S. consumers and even hurt U.S. manufacturers in the U.S. who depend on Chinese imports, as well as, of course, the many U.S. businesses that export very successfully to China, right. which would face retaliation. Great to have you both with us. Thank you, Jacques. Great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you. And nice to have you on the phone with us today. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.